This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We are continuing a series that we began a few weeks ago, meditating on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As followers of Jesus, we believe that he has given us of his very own spirit, not just a book and some teaching and some instruction, but the spirit of Jesus himself has been given to us and poured into our hearts so that we might actually change and be transformed into his image. And as we go through these different fruit of the spirit, we remember that we are talking about Jesus and the character of Christ himself And we are being made more like Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And today we're meditating on the fruit of the Spirit being peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And peace is one of those wonderfully full, pregnant, evocative words in Scripture. It's about human beings flourishing as individuals and also collectively and socially. When we're talking about peace, we're talking about living life the way it was always meant to be lived, the way God created us to live. It's that vision of Isaiah, of every man living secure under his own vine and his own fig tree. We're in a place where everyone feels happy and secure. When we're talking about peace, we're talking about the way the world was meant to be, but tragically, we're not talking about the way the world actually is because today there are armed conflicts all over the world there are wars going on right now in myanmar yemen ethiopia Uh, there's this terrible drug war going on in mexico there's the boko haram insurgency in west africa civil war in syria if you go on the wikipedia page and just read the list of ongoing conflicts in the world it is a long and depressing article down from these huge conflicts to smaller ones you might not even have ever heard of like the allied democratic forces insurgency in congo and uganda probably very few of you are even aware of that conflict almost 2500 people died in that war in 2021 and of course at this very moment there are tens of thousands of russian troops poised on the borders of ukraine and god knows what horrors are about to be unleashed very close to us And that's just the wars between nations, not to speak of state-led mass killings, genocides, tortures, including the very nation that is hosting the Winter Olympics as we speak. And then there's all this sectarian conflict within nations, racial, ethnic hatred and suspicions that flare up in, in mob riots and murders. It's no wonder that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees reports that there are about 84 million people around the world who are forcibly displaced because their homes are no longer places of peace and security. They've got to flee their own country. And that 84 million refugees includes 35 million children. This is not the way the world was meant to be. And of course, there's also terrible interpersonal violence in our world. 
people who injure, abuse, damage, and destroy each other. We're talking about child abuse and neglect and exploitation, domestic intimate partner violence, the mistreatment of the elderly, rape, sexual assault. It is a long, long, long list of what human beings, supposedly the most highly evolved of the animals, are capable of doing to one another. And here in this place, as the church of God, small and weak as we are, we believe that the spirit of the living God, the same dove who descended on Jesus, has descended on this group of random people to change us and to empower us to be peacemakers and agents and ministers of God's reconciliation in a very violent and deeply broken world. James is talking here about the way of wisdom. Because living in peace is living in harmony with our creator and running smoothly along the grooves of the reality that he has created in our entire lives. And I think it's a mistake, as I think a lot of people do when they think of the fruit of the Spirit being peace, to think only of my private, personal, psychological wellness, right? Me feeling a serenity in my inner being. And this sense that, hey, as long as I'm basking in my personal serenity, the rest of the world can burn up in flames as far as I'm concerned. I'm doing well within myself. But the gospel calls all of us to be an ambassador of Jesus, to be a representative of the Prince of Peace, and to announce and embody and work for the peace that Jesus wants to bring to the world, the wholeness and the healing that Jesus, as the Son of God and the Word of God, is bringing to all his creation. And of course, before we get too grandiose and think on too large of a scale, this piece begins with ourselves. It's about us, small and humble and ordinary people, pursuing peace in our own lives and in our own immediate relationships and families and in this little congregation. So that this potent yeast of the kingdom can then spread through us and through our brothers and sisters throughout the world into all of God's creation. And this is so, so vital. How we relate to each other. That is a subject that every single New Testament author is deeply concerned about. Paul and James and John and Peter again and again seem to be deeply concerned with the quality of relationships that Christians have within the body of Christ. Because if there isn't wholeness and healing here, then we have nothing but empty words to offer to the world. As the church, we're meant to be kind of a scale model of what God wants to do in his entire creation. Kind of a demonstration unit of what the Holy Spirit will do throughout this entire world when the lion lies down with the lamb and the swords are beaten into plowshares. And James says, look, if any of you claim to be wise and understanding, 
If anyone's bragging about the deep insight that they have into the ways of God, their profound knowledge of theology, all the scripture they've memorized and can quote at will, hey, if you want to prove that, demonstrate it with the quality of your life. James is not a man who's patient with anyone's BS, right? He's a practical, very earthy person who's like, hey, show me with your life or I'm not even going to bother listening to you. Demonstrate your grasp of the gospel with the quality of your relationships. Those are the only people worth listening to and following within the church. James is dealing with people who feel you know, pretty smug and pretty confident in their theology. People who are bragging about how well they know their Bibles, but are complete jerks to everyone around them, especially other Christians that they perceive as doctrinally deficient. Thankfully, that is not an issue that we've had to deal with for many centuries now. We no longer have those types of people in the church, nor is anyone here tempted to be that kind of arrogant jerk. I'm being sarcastic, of course referring to myself, first of all. James is quite alarmed, looking around the church, seeing disturbing signs of bitter envy and selfish ambition within the temple of the living God. People who are using the gospel as a way to gain leverage over other people to feel better about themselves, and to gain money and power and prestige. I think James would say, if you're using the gospel to gain power over other people, you don't understand the gospel at all. However ably you may be able to spout forth your doctrinal formulations, you haven't really encountered the grace of God. He says, if you're that kind of person, you completely lack the humility that comes from the true wisdom that God grants. Here are people who thought they had mastered God because they had read certain words and they had grasped certain concepts. But if they had genuinely encountered God, if they'd been broken by God's holiness, if they had been overwhelmed by God's forgiveness, if they'd been filled with his love, They wouldn't be shoving people to the ground as they scrambled for the number one position within the church. We're talking here about an extreme and destructive individualism, which only sees other people either as threats or as vehicles for our own personal advancement. So instead of asking, how can I offer myself to serve the good of the community? These are people who are asking, how can I use and manipulate this community for myself? And if we're honest, we have to admit, we're not just talking about other people. We all feel these temptations to differing degrees and differing ways in our own hearts As we're born again by the Spirit, we still have a lot of remaining sin to deal with and very worldly habits of relating to other people. And we need to be vigilant in repenting of these things and continually offering ourselves to the Holy Spirit and asking him, Spirit, make me more like Jesus. 
Help me to model my own life on his sacrificial giving for other people. Because the wisdom that uses and manipulates and seeks to control other people for ourselves, however clever or cunning that might be, James says, this is nothing to do with the true wisdom that comes from God. This cleverness in using and manipulating other people is just the way of the world clothed in religious garb using Christian language. Robert Greene was a writer for Esquire magazine, and in 1998, he wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power, which in America at least sold 1.2 million copies. And he went back to Julius Caesar and Machiavelli and all these people who achieved the highest goals of worldly and economic and political power. And he tried to summarize in these 48 rules principles he could take from these brutally successful people that anyone could apply to their own lives. Let me give you a few examples of his 48 laws of power. Law number three, conceal your intentions. Law number seven, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. You may be working with some of these people. Law number 12, use selective honesty and generosity to disarm the victim. Law 17, Keep others in suspended terror. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. Please do not write these rules down. Law number 27. Play on people's need to believe to create a cult-like following. Law number 42. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Wikipedia says, with no apparent irony, that The 48 Laws of Power is very popular with prison convicts and Hollywood celebrities. And Robert Greene later wrote a book on relationships, on seduction. And he may well have been very effective in convincing women to get into bed with him, but you wonder whether he was able to really cultivate a genuine personal relationship with any human being. Because this kind of worldly wisdom which is effective, which does help people gain money and power and prestige and status. These ways of relating to other people are from the pit of hell itself. This kind of bitter envy and selfish ambition and manipulation of other people, these are trademarks of the evil one. And when we act this way, we are mirroring the behavior of Satan. Because bitter envy and selfish ambition are the very qualities that led to the devil's fall from heaven. And what he stirs up in his own followers, whether they're human or demonic, is the spirit at the root of all warfare and all violence and all conflict in the world. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. James tells us, where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every kind of evil practice. And he goes on to say in chapter 4, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? What is the root of human conflict? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? 
Let's just tease this apart a little bit, because I think if we can understand what goes on in sinful conflict a little better, we'll have a clearer idea of what it means to actually pursue peace that comes from the heart. Think about envy and ambition. Those are actually two different sides of discontent. Envy is discontent with others. Ambition is discontent with myself. Envy and ambition are both actually signs of deep personal insecurity. And so I have these unmet needs and desires and cravings. And inevitably, those are going to clash with your deep, unmet needs, desires, and cravings. And so we end up battling it out viciously over limited resources. Insecurity creates conflict. We are fostering a little corgi named Rijik, our little red-headed corgi. And... He's got a little bit of a troubled past. He was a street dog, and then he was in the, in the animal shelter. He's kind of blind in one eye, and he periodically has seizures. And when he came into our house, he was a little overwhelmed with not just these four humans, but another dog and these strange cats and all these animals. And he was quite uncertain as to how to relate to us, especially towards me. I think he might have had some abusive males in his life. And so he would try to find a safe corner. And if I came in and got near him, he would be wagging his tail, but he would also be burying his teeth and growling. And there were a few times that he, I tried to reach out foolishly to pet him, and he snapped at me and tried to bite me. But over time, little Ridgick began to grow more secure in his surroundings and realized he had a place and he belonged, and there were safe spots for him in the house. He also had the attentions of a Russian animal therapist. I don't inquire about the Russians' methods, but they are effective. <laughs> and somehow he managed to fix Ridgick, and now Ridgick, he comes downstairs, and he's trotting, and you know how dogs smile? He's like smiling and cheerful, and he's not aggressive anymore because he feels safe. He knows he's going to be fed and cared for, and no one's going to attack him, and therefore he doesn't feel the need to attack others. Because you know with dogs, it's always the nervous, insecure little dogs that are the most dangerous and the most likely to bite you. I think there's a lot we can learn about human psychology from our furry, four-legged friends, right? Human beings are the same way. Nervous, anxious, insecure people are more likely to bite other people, figuratively and perhaps literally. And what I find so fascinating about this passage, after talking about bitter envy and selfish ambitions and warring desires, James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. He's not saying that our needs and desires and even cravings are necessarily inherently sinful, but that we're seeking to meet those things apart from God, and then they get all bent and twisted. In other words, the reason that people are nervous and fearful and anxious and aggressive is because they don't have a deep trust that God is going to take care of them. And that's why they go around biting other people. 
We've been taking just a little time, a few minutes, to think about the pathology of conflict so that we can have some deeper insights into what it actually means to live in healthy relationships and have real peace with one another. So if distrusting God leads to inner anxiety and insecurity, which leads to conflict with other people, then I think we can safely say the reverse is true, right? If I have a profound trust that my Heavenly Father is going to take care of my needs, then I will experience inner security and safety, and then I don't have the need to fight with other people over limited resources. What we're doing now is pulling together three different biblical dimensions of peace. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with other people. And of course, the whole story of the gospel is God pursuing and making peace with human beings, right? God chooses to make peace, to reconcile sinful, rebellious humanity by the gift of his son. Because God is utterly secure and he has no needs and he feels no anxiety and he has everything to share with us. And Jesus comes and willingly offers himself on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for humanity's sin. And Jesus is doing this in the middle of the Roman Empire, right? The Romans had their peace, their Pax Romana, and the reason they were able to build all these roads and aqueducts and temples and monuments is because they enforced peace through state-sponsored terror. And the cross was their tool. Their tool to hold out as a threat to people that if you lift even a finger against Rome, you will be screaming and wishing that you had never been born. Because we're not just going to execute you, we're going to extract every possible agony of pain out of your body that we're capable of doing. And here Jesus comes, the Son of God, the true Savior, the true Emperor, who is going to make his own peace through the cross, not as an instrument of terror and bloodshed against other people, but Jesus actually sheds his own blood. He climbs on the cross himself. And Jesus, the innocent victim, absorbs into himself all of humanity's evil so that he can destroy it. And if the cross shows us anything, it shows us that peace is not easy or cheap. Peacemaking is hard work. Where there's been real sin, where there have been deep wounds, where we've been profoundly broken by another person, the cross shows us that it is costly to deal with sin. It is costly to restore relationships. It is costly to make reconciliation. It is costly to bring about peace. Yet, the cross shows us that God is determined to make peace at the highest possible cost. And the cross is our bridge toward peace with God, and it gives us and it secures peace with God as his gift to us. And this peace with God then creates a peace within myself, right? I learn incredibly that God accepts me. 
And therefore, I learn to accept myself. The cross tells me that God forgives me. And then I learn to trust and receive that I am truly forgiven. I'm loved through Christ. And this peace with God is not just the cessation of hostilities. This is not God saying, okay, I'm no longer going to drop bombs and fire artillery into your territory. This is a peace where God brings about wholeness and healing and restoration in the relationship where I'm not just no longer an enemy. I am actually brought into God's family. And he tells me, I am your father. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. I'm going to take care of your every need. And then I begin to learn over time as I follow Jesus to cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. Jesus came to share his own relationship with the Father with you. And he told his disciples, look at the birds of the air, right? They're not sowing or reaping or stowing away their supplies in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than many sparrows? And this gives me the confidence to ask God in faith as my father to pray, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. I learn to trust that God is going to supply all my needs in Christ Jesus. From my basic physiological needs, for food and clothing and shelter, to my psychological and emotional needs for love and belonging and meaning, all those things are mine in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace with God leads to peace within myself. Knowing that God is my father, he's going to take care of me, he's going to supply all my needs, he's going to protect me from all evil, gives me a feeling of profound security within my own heart. It calms my nervousness and my anxieties and my jitteriness. I no longer feel the same a bitter envy and selfish ambition because I've come to learn that God is caring for me. I don't have to be quite so violent in trying to take care of myself. And this peace with God that gives me peace with myself then leads to peace with other people, right? It changes my relationships with others because I'm no longer looking at other people as either a threat to my cravings or as a vehicle for my desires. I start to see them as they are, human beings created in God's image with dignity and value and purpose, people who are loved by God. Because I've begun to learn that God's love is infinite. It's not a scarce resource that we have to scramble for and fight over. If you are loved by God and you're being taken care of by God, that doesn't threaten me in the slightest. In fact, it encourages me. I see how God's answering your prayers, and I'm receiving a testimony again. God takes care of his children. He takes care of my brother. He takes care of my sister. He's going to take care of me 
as well. Peace, the peace that scripture speaks of, is incredibly rich and complex. And it's tied in with all these other virtues. In fact, one of my struggles preaching through the series is that scripture is almost always weaving these fruit of the Spirit and these virtues in with one another. They can't be separated quite as neatly as the preacher would wish. They're all woven together into one garment. And notice in verse 17, all these qualities of wisdom that go along with peace. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I checked. None of those qualities made it into Robert Greene's 48 Rules of Power. I apologize. These things will not help you use, abuse, and dominate other people. If that's your goal, look elsewhere besides the New Testament. None of these qualities are necessarily going to help you become a successful person as the world defines it. If you think of success as acquiring more money and more power and more influence and more status and prestige, this is not the way. What these qualities do describe are the kind of people who make up a healthy community. People who are seeking the common good over their individual advantage. The wise people that James is describing are the quieter, humbler, more ordinary kind of people who are going to be there for you when all the noisy, egotistical, self-promoting individuals have moved on to other victims. And our ambition, not our selfish ambition, but our healthy, Jesus-driven ambition should be to be the happy, secure kind of people like this who experience and radiate peace to those around them. I want to offer a few practical ways that our security in Christ can actually help us develop a truly peaceful community. Number one is this. That if we are secure in Jesus, we will not be threatened by differences of opinion on secondary matters. Right? There's a difference between primary gospel matters, which we are going to guard as a church. We need unity around Jesus. But we need space to allow our brothers and sisters to see secondary and third-level issues differently than ourselves. And if I'm secure in Christ, and I can stand confidently and humbly before my master, and trust that you are standing the same way before our common master, I will not feel the same need to force you into my exact way of viewing things. And I have to say, it's so grievous over the last year or two, seeing churches divided over issues of masks and vaccinations and how the government is responding to this COVID-19 pandemic. 
What a tragedy for churches to be splitting apart and fracturing because of disagreements over how we view those things. Where there's no longer any generosity of spirit to people who perceive things differently, who have a different experience from ourselves, we become angry and dogmatic and dismissive of anyone who perceives things differently than myself. We have to beware of the temptation to only be speaking our convictions and not actually listening to others in the church who might disagree with us. And this is the really awful thing about social media, I think. This platform which we once imagined was going to bring human beings together. What it actually allows us to do is to go into silos where we only have to listen to people who have the exact same convictions as we do. And so we spend our time in an echo chamber and we demonize people who might see things differently from ourselves. And that's really, really shameful when that happens within the church. We're angrily judging and denouncing our brothers and sisters who see things differently from ourselves. We want this to be a community of grace around that issue and other secondary issues. I know the leadership might make some decisions that are not quite your decisions. That's okay. If you're secure in Christ, you don't need to be threatened by that, right? We want to be a church that allows variety and difference of opinion on secondary issues. Here's another one. Security in Christ gives us the confidence to confront issues that need to be confronted. Peacemaking is not the same as conflict avoidance. Often avoiding conflicts and dealing with conflicts is what keeps them going far longer than they need to. And our love for other people and our love for the good of the community means sometimes we have to have some hard conversations with people. If there's someone in your small group, for example, who's always interrupting and rudely contradicting other people, and everyone's too nervous and afraid to deal with that person, it's going to break that little community. Someone needs to have kind of an uncomfortable and unpleasant conversation, right? And it's not our love for other people that keeps us from confronting them. It's our love for our own comfort and refusal to be put into awkward situations. But what our security in Jesus does is it gives us the hope that things can be different in the way they are now. It's easy to despair in relationships. Long-standing family issues, perhaps, where it's just too much trouble to peel the lid off and deal with stuff. We believe that God has given his spirit to this church family. And that gives us the courage to have those hard conversations, praying and trusting that somehow, in this awkward coming together of two human beings, that the spirit of God can be present in that conversation. 
Jesus is present when two or three people are gathered together, Matthew 18 says, in the context of church discipline and rebuking sin. Here's our third one. Our security in Christ gives us the confidence to say, I was wrong. The very hardest three words for human beings to utter. I was wrong. A word that no politician can ever bring himself to say, right? And sadly, a word that many Christians and many Christian leaders can never bring themselves to say. We of all people should be the ones to confess our sin openly, without excuses or evasions, and say, I'm very sorry, I was wrong, and I see how I deeply hurt you, and I wounded you, and I offended you, because I was being arrogant, or selfish, or thoughtless. And it is the gospel that gives us the confidence to do that, right? Without the gospel, we will be psychologically destroyed if we admit we are wrong. But here we are standing before the cross, where God says in the cross, you are wrong. Your sin is actually far worse than you could imagine, and far worse than anyone would dare to tell you. This is what your sin deserves. And yet the cross also tells us you are completely forgiven, you are totally washed clean, you are utterly accepted by God. And that gives us the psychological courage to own the truth about ourselves, however unpleasant it is. And if I've already gone to God through Christ and had the light shining on the dark places of my heart and been revealed and opened up before God and received forgiveness, I no longer have to feel shattered and destroyed when I have to own up to that with someone else because my sin is no longer something that can destroy me or devastate me. It grieves me. I need to humble myself. I need to deal with the garbage in my life. But I come to it from a position of security in Christ. And think of all the conflicts that drag on because no one is willing to admit they were wrong. It's too shameful. It's too devastating. And so things never get resolved. And then, of course, fourthly, security in Christ gives us the confidence to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm no longer going to hold this over your head. I'm no longer going to harbor resentment and judgment over you because of your guilt. Because I've been forgiven and washed clean, I'm going to release you from this sin that is holding you in bondage. Because what I want more than your destruction, what I want more than your humiliation, what I want more than you being ground down into the dust for what you did for me, is I want the restoration of our relationship. And I want the peace that God wants to bring us. James promises us that peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers. 
The only other time that word occurs in the Bible, of course, is our Lord Jesus himself saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, bearing our Father's resemblance. We're all called, as we follow Jesus, to be patiently dropping little seeds of peace and reconciliation wherever we go. Taking the time to sew up the stitches in our ripped and torn relationships. And James is saying, at the end of our lifetime, when we've done that humble, ordinary, seemingly pointless work, there will be a harvest of righteousness. If you want to live a life that actually counts for God, that actually achieves something, this is the way to do it. It's not just about a private reward for myself. This is about a harvest of righteousness and justice for the entire community that I've been serving. You know, most of us are not called to be professional conflict negotiators, arbitrating in labor disputes or international conflicts. Yet, we are all called to be agents of the kingdom, the hidden kingdom of God. We're called to be God's ministers of reconciliation wherever we find ourselves. And we do that reminding ourselves that peacemaking is ultimately God's work. God is up to something in the world. He is at work uniting all things in Christ. And when we have that hard conversation, when we choose to humble ourselves, when we choose to resolve a conflict, when we choose to engage in a relationship and to forgive someone, we're actually reflecting the character of our Heavenly Father. We're bearing the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus within us. We're laboring in anticipation of the arrival of the Prince of Peace. We're looking forward to the day when the wolf will live with the lamb, when the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Shall we pray and ask for God to bring that, dear, that day near? Heavenly Father, we come before you in thankfulness that you are the one who has already made peace with us. You, the grieved, offended, and sinned against one, have given the gift of your Son to effect reconciliation. And therefore, we don't have to live with anxiety, with stress, with threat, with fear of anything hanging over us. You've given us the gift of security in Christ. And we pray together, Lord, that by your spirit, that feeling of peace and confidence would work its way into every corner of our heart and actually overflow in our lives so that we might live in wholeness and healing and flourishing with those around us. Lord, we offer up to you the broken relationships in our own lives. Relationships and conflicts that we may have been 
avoiding because we're afraid of how things are going to go. And we ask for the wisdom from your Holy Spirit. Do what we can, as far as it is possible within us, to live in peace with others. And Lord, we pray that you protect this church from the assaults of the evil one, for the ways that he wants to tear us apart and through our own sins of envy and ambition to break apart the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. Help us to reflect the character of your son, the Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.